0: Oh, so, you know when you, (laughs) thank you, just, just, just keep going, okay, 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 come on, they want to keep you in service, youth, okay, they're like, can we just push them back out, push them back out of the service, they're getting too rowdy, you know, what do you say when you come back home, what do you say when you come back, I mean, think about it, I'm sure this has played out maybe in some of the scenarios in your life, you know, kid comes back from college, he comes back and he realizes when he's at college man i have to do my own laundry and man i got to prepare meals and and i've got to pay my own bills and i've got these these different things and obligations on myself and sometimes when that college kid comes back home the words he says are sorry right sorry mom and dad i i, I didn't appreciate all that you gave me in when i was here the, the care and the provision and the protection and the guidance and the and the learning and the teaching and all those things i didn't i didn't get to say Thank you enough, so I want to apologize. Well, I'm going to go in a similar vein here, and I'm going to start out by saying sorry. But sorry for a different reason. Sorry because I think I might ruin your life. I know you're like, uh, Phil, just take away the microphone, turn it off. Wow, Paul, it's so exciting to have you back so you can come here and ruin our lives. Now, I say that in hyperbole. I say that with some sense of exaggeration. But I want, to, I want us to enter into a conversation, a conversation that I would tell you, I can honestly say, kind of ruined my life. Now, not in a bad way, but it's a conversation and a principle that was crystallized before me that honestly has kept me up at night. Ever since I heard it, ever since it was first delivered to me, it has been something in the back of my mind, almost in everything I do, every plan that I make, every way I look at my kids, I look at my wife, I look at my friends, I look at the job that I have, the skills that I have, the education I want to pursue, all of that has been affected and influenced and, for lack of a better term, ruined by this one conversation, this one conversation. That conversation was a conversation I had here. Now, some of you are here and you're like, I kind of know what you're talking about because I've had that moment where Pastor Phil, somehow with that spiritual gift appearing into my very soul has been able to tell me, you're not doing what you need to do, you need to do this. And then you just do it and it changes and alters and course corrects you. Well, I remember being here at 25 years old, just out of seminary, eager, excited. This is over seven years ago. Eager and excited to do work, to do ministry. and All this education piled up in my head, but no execution. And so I remember coming in very excited, very eager, and so they sat us down, and, and Rich and Phil at the time decided, let's get the young kind of pastors on staff, and let's, let's tell them and teach them how to do ministry. It was a very cool opportunity, and I'll tell you right now, two of those meetings have been in my head since then. Two of those meetings have changed how I do ministry, one of those meetings really changed how the method of ministry that I do, the way I do ministry, any infrastructure I've ever built, any team I've ever tried to lead has been influenced by one of those conversations. The other conversation is the one I want to share with you. And this is the one that didn't necessarily change my paradigm of, of how to build a team or how to execute ministry. Rather, this is the one that is embedded in my very soul. This is the one that wakes me up at night. This is the conversation that moves me and drives me to think about the future. And so I wanna invite you into that conversation. Before I do, I have to apologize. And tell you, this might course correct you. This might change things for you. It might have the same effect on you that it had on me. It might keep you up at night. But I want you to know this, when we have these conversations, when when we come to service, I want you to know this is the expectation. This is the expectation that Phil has set since he's been here. This is the expectation he has put in every pastor who's been here. We have a very high expectation of our service. And it's not that the jokes will be funny. You're like, amen to that. (laughs) It's not that the illustrations are going to be good or well articulated. It's not even necessarily that the music is going to be played with excellence. We strive for those things. But our expectation for every service is that God speaks. That God speaks, because that's the voice we want to hear. That's the the one we want to call us. That's the one that moves us from where we are to where we want to be. It's the voice of the Father. And how do we hear that? This book right here. It's not because of who we are, whoever's on stage, or whoever's microphone is turned on or plugged in. It's who is explaining this book. And so this conversation is in this book. But let me explain how the conversation first unfolded for me here seven years ago. Sitting in a room, Pastor Phil, Pastor Rich, we're going through this book. It's a great book. It was a good book. It moved me. I still refer people to that book. But what happened is they crystallized for us kind of one of the topics in the book in a way, again, that just changed me. And this is what happened. The chapter was talking about potential, talking about the investment that God has made in us, the gifts that God has given us and what he expects from us. And this was the phrase. If you're taking notes, grab the pen that's in front of you in that little pew and grab that notes that you were given by an usher or greeter that came in. You should take notes in a service. If God's going to speak, you should write some of it down. So I want you to write this down, this phrase. If you only write down one thing, write down this phrase. This is what was given to me in that meeting. This is the phrase. And I think it was pointed at me if I remember the conversation right. It was, Paul, the worst place to take potential is the grave. The worst place to take Potential is the grave. I will tell you right now, I don't look at my finances the same. I don't look at my work the same. I don't look at my family the same. I don't look at my kids the same. I don't look at my friendships the same. I can't look at anything the same with that phrase bouncing around in my head. Because I don't want my tombstone to read Paul Crandall, he could have done much. Rather, I want my tombstone to say he did much. I don't want to get into eternity on anything but empty. I don't want anything left in the tank. I don't want anything left to give. I want it all to be played out. I want to push so hard, strive so hard, run so hard. There's nothing left in me and I collapse on that finish line. And that's what that phrase did to me, and that's what drove me, and that's what pushed me, and everything has changed in my landscape of thinking because I do not want to take any of my potential to the grave. Now, I think this is what Jesus did. I think the reason why this conversation is so powerful, why this this phrase is so powerful, is this is the very teaching of Jesus Christ himself. Give it a very intricate time of his message and his journey with his disciples. I want to invite you to go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is where I think Jesus is going to tell a, a parable that expresses and crystallizes this point. To not take our potential to the grave. In Luke 19, Jesus has a very serious story that he tells his disciples and what happens, if, if you don't know what, what's going on in Luke at the time, what Luke has done for us is really in Luke chapter 9, I think it's verse 51 or 52. You can ask Phil later. He's got the whole thing memorized. I think it's 51. What happens is Luke tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And from that moment on, things change. The whole posture really of the gospel of Luke changes. It's the hinge point of his whole story. From Luke 9:51, that from that point on, there's not very many miracles as there were before. There's some, but not as many as there were over here. And there's not very many geographical markers or time markers. There's, there's less. There's some, but there's less. Then the teaching is more serious. There's, there's more parables. This is the largest collection of parables. And the teaching is very severe. And Jesus starts to build this contrast to what the religious leaders teach and what he teaches. And his teaching gets more intimate. Now, why the change? I think what Luke is doing there is Luke is saying, I'm on my way to the cross. Right? He's setting his face towards Jerusalem, looking to that city. And what will happen at that city? He will die at that city. And so just as he journeys to Jerusalem, so too the disciples must journey to Jerusalem. Just as he goes towards the cross... To embrace the destiny handed to him by the Father, so too his disciples must embrace their cross and the destiny that the Father has for them. This is when we get the serious teaching. This is where we get the deeper teaching. Jesus told them in the beginning in Luke 9 that their cross will have to be something that they bear. Through the rest of the narrative, he shows them this is how heavy that cross is. And I want to show you this because I think what Jesus is doing, this is the last parable we get before the triumphal entry, before really the death process starts for him, before the plan of his execution would unfold. He gives us this parable, and it's about our potential. Let me show you this. Luke chapter 19, we're starting in verse 11. It says, As they, and these being disciples, heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable. Now, a parable is just a story with connections to reality that have a point. So I'm going to give you some of those connection points where I think these players are in real life. And then we'll get to the point, the thrust of this story. So he tells this parable. Now, the beauty is Luke tells us why. Why tell this parable? Why tell this story? We don't have to wait till the end. He gives it to us right at the beginning. Look what he says, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus is confronting some expectations. They're walking to Jerusalem. Now, what's significant about that? Why does that destination have to do anything with about a kingdom? Well, if you go back a couple hundred years to David, I think it's in 1 Samuel chapter 5, David institutes his rule through the city of Jerusalem. This is the royal city of King David. So really the beautiful and wonderful monarchy of Israel was set up at the center point and epicenter of the city of Jerusalem. This is a royal city. Well, secular authorities came in. Herod would come in. He did the same thing. He took Jerusalem so he could rule the Jews at the time. So as the disciples are heading towards Jerusalem, they're thinking this is the royal city. This is where David set himself up. This is where Herod has set himself up. And then it says, they're thinking the kingdom of God is coming now. So as they're kind of rolling up to the street, they're thinking, all right, this is it. we got all this teaching. We know Jesus is the son of David. We know he's coming. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. We know the promises, what God will do, the victory he will bring to his people. All right, King Jesus, start taking names. Let's go in here. Let's kick the Romans off. Let's get them out of here. And they're kind of starting to chest up, getting excited, throwing gang signs. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't think they're doing that. Don't write that down in your notes. Disciples throwing gang signs. Don't. Please don't do that. That's not the point. But you can feel their anticipation, their excitement, a a sense of anticipating triumph, if you will. Now, of course, this is not in Jesus' plan. Sure, the GPS is Right? Jerusalem is the right destination, but not for installment. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to be crowned, but crucified. He's not going to be installed and given authority. He's going to be shamed, to be ridiculed, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be cursed, to be abandoned by the Father. He won't receive a royal robe or a signet ring. He'll receive a crucifixion. He'll receive a crossbeam, and he'll carry it to the hill of his death. And his disciples must know this. This isn't a crowning moment. it's a moment of sacrifice. Now, Jesus has told them, and I think it would be revealed later for them very clearly, that when Christ came, what he's doing, he's coming as the suffering servant, the king that must die. But there will be a day where he does come back. There will be a day where all those promises of a rule and a reign in God's kingdom in its fullness will come, but that's at the second coming. But there's this gap here between suffering servant and conquering king. There's a gap. And the parable Jesus will tell us is what do we do here? What do we do in this gap? What are the disciples' role now? What's the investment that God has put in them, and what is he expecting from them in this interim period? So he tells this parable with those expectations, and this is what he starts to reveal to us. Look in verse 12 of Luke chapter 19. And he said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Who is this? Who's this nobleman? This is Jesus Christ. He's the one about to receive a kingdom. If you read the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, I think later established in Luke's second book, the book of Acts, sorry, that we will see this is what Christ is doing. When Christ comes in and is crucified, resurrects again from the grave, ascends to the Father, he receives a kingdom. Immediately, right then, right there, he is given the kingdom. He rules. Now, he will come back and execute that kingdom, but he is king, and the kingdom is his. And it's given based off his victory at the cross. The nobleman is Jesus Christ, but in this in-between, as he has gone to receive that kingdom, receives that kingdom, before he comes back, he's got to deal with his people, and this is what he does, verse 13, then calling 10 servants, he gave them 10 minas, now that that word minas, okay, what does that mean? That's money, it's about four years, sorry, four months wages, I remember the pronunciation, because when you think of money, you think of minas. Yeah, this first service laughed about that much too. Okay. It helps us pronounce things. So he gives them an investment, right? And then what he wants to do, he gives them this money, he gives them these minas, and this is what he says, verse 13. He said to them, engage in business until I come. I want you to do some work. I want to make a profit off of this. Now, just take that, take that right now. Let's try we said that the parable connects to reality. It connects to what a real story is. So what does Jesus want us to do here? Is he telling us, all right, guys, I want you to diversify your stock portfolios. I want you to get the right aggressive mutual fund, get the right bonds, maybe some foreign trading over here, get in the stock market, get in the real estate market, flip some homes. Is Jesus promoting his disciples to be fiscally responsible and invest wisely? Right? To know the market, research the algorithms in the trading fields. Is that what he wants? No, this is not what he, it's not about a budget. It's not about a 401k. Now those are good things. What's the business the servants are supposed to do while they wait for the master to come back? What are they supposed to do? Is it a financial thing? No, I think it's very clear in the book of Luke what Jesus wants the disciples to do. If you just go, we're in Luke 19, go to Luke 9 and Luke 10. It's easy because you put 9 and 10 together, it makes 19. So we're in 19. Go to Luke 9 and 10. Those things help me because I'm dyslexic. So if I get to numbers, that's crazy, which is great because now my budget I got to work with is $2 million, so that's good, right? Put the guy that's bad with numbers in charge of a budget that large. It might be $5 I don't know. I just flipped it around. (laughs) You can laugh at a dyslexic joke. That's okay. Okay, Luke chapter 9 and then Luke chapter 10. When Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, what does he send them out to do? What's the business he expects them to do? Luke chapter 9 verse 6 says this, And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. What's the business of the church? What's the business of the saints? To preach the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That by his death and resurrection we've been freed from our sin that all of our debt has been paid. That the Father has come with a wonderful plan, a rescue plan. He sends his son to pay the penalty for our sins. And through his resurrection, we know there is victory. And all we must do is bow our knee in faith to him. That's the gospel. That's the news. That's what he wants us to do. It's the same thing in Luke chapter 10. This time Jesus sends out more. Not just the 12. Now he's sending out 72. But they're doing the same thing. In Luke chapter 10, verse 11... It says this, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. This is what I want you to do. In verse 9, he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. Christ has come and instituted the rule and reign of God the Father, and now you can relate to this king. He's not your judge. He is now your father because of what I have done in being the son and my death for you. Now you're back in the family. That's what they do. So this business that these people are involved in, these servants are involved in is what? Preaching the gospel, doing ministry. So look at the investment he gives them. Let's go back to Luke chapter 19. Go back to our parable. He wants them to engage in business, but then there's a third group or sorry, a second group in verse 14. He, He invests in these people. He gives them 10 minas, right, to each servant, which is one mina per. And he says to them, engage in business. But then Luke inserts this other group, which is unique to Luke, but I think is very important where he places this parable in his narrative. Look in verse 14. It says, but his citizens hated him. They didn't like this guy. They hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we, don't, we do not want this man to reign over us. Who is this? I mean, think about where we are in the story that Luke is unfolding for us. We're about to get to the crucifixion. We're about to get to the crowd screaming, crucify him. Who are these people that don't want Christ to get the kingdom, that don't want to rule or be ruled by him, that don't want to bow a knee to him, that don't want to confess him as Lord, that want to rebel against him? This is the majority of the religious leaders, the Jewish group there. In Luke 20, chapter, or Luke 20, verse 17, these are the ones who rejected the cornerstone. I mean, you think of the irony of just the picture of the crucifixion. What hung above Christ's head? King of the Jews. But was it not the Jews who screamed for his name? Was it not the Jews who applied political pressure to the Romans and forced their hand to execute the king? This is who they are. These are the the rebels, if you will, that want to throw off the kingdom of God. And Luke will get to that in, in, in the rest of his narrative as he unfolds the passion. But the point is to the servants. So let's jump into those servants because this king comes back. Despite the delegation that went out, despite Their uh, idea of uh, of rebellion, he's received the kingdom. They can't stop him. He gets the kingdom, he comes back, and he calls things to account. Now, I think we should interpret this as this is the end of days. This is it, when he calls everything to account. This is a great judgment time, a great reckoning time. This has not happened yet. This will happen. The king comes back, executes the kingdom, and he calls his servants. He says, what have you done? Look at what he says. In verse 15, and when he returned with the kingdom in hand, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Hey, it's a thousand percent profit. Who would not like that in their like 403B, 401K plan? Right? I put some money in and put a, put a dollar in. I get a hundred. Awesome. That's awesome. Or ten. See, this is why I'm not good with numbers. Okay? <laughs> You're like, that's not the right math. I would go higher, but then the numbers would get more <laughs> combobulated. But a thousand percent profit. This guy is a rock star. This guy is ultimate. I mean, we've, we have some of these people. We've seen ministers like this. This is probably like a Billy Graham. Where God gives an investment, and the yield that comes is incredible, and the influence is just just outstanding. And what does the king say to this servant? He was a nobleman. He now received the kingdom. He is king. And he says to this nobleman this, who has given him a 1,000% profit. Look in verse 17. And he said to him, well done. Good servant. That's what we want to hear. When everything is wrapped up. Not good job, you had a lot of equity. Right? Not good job, you had a lot of influence. Not good job, you know what? You held a good wage, you were a good man, you were a good husband, you were a good son. We want to hear well done what? Good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little. I think that's humorous. Very little. He invested in this person four months' wages. That's like a down payment that he gave to this servant. And then he yielded from four wages, four months' wages, to 40 months' wages. I did the math right that time. This is not little, but look what he gives to him. He's saying this is very little, and then the father, or the the king's heart comes out. Look how he rewards the servant. You shall have authority over 10 cities. I'm not here to give you money. I'm here to give you cities. Cities. For you to rule over, for you to execute justice. 10 cities. This is the heart of the king to reward his faithful servants. I give you this. I invest in you, and that potential starts to grow. That potential starts to actualize. And then when you're faithful, what do I do? I just give you more. I want to see you run. I'm the cheerleader on the sidelines, so excited every time you finish the lap, and I just push you on to more and more and more and more and more. This is the delight of the king, to share in this great ministry. Well, let me see the next one. Second servant. Look in verse 18. Thank you. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Now stop here. Just think for a moment if you're the nobleman coming back. You're sitting there, you're looking at all your investments, checking the portfolio, seeing the yield of your investments. One guy, thousand percent profit. You're like, wow, what's the other one gonna be? Next guy comes. Man, can you imagine being the second guy? Like, a thousand percent profit? Really? I only did five hundred percent profit. I only have a five times yield. Like maybe the nobleman would be like, hey, you could have invested like your brother. You could have done a little better. And we do this. I think we do this. We get competitive. Right? In an unholy way, we do this. Oh, I'm not as influential as him. I don't have the gifts that he has. But I think you take this parable with a very similar parable in Matthew chapter 25, and you see the investment that the king makes. He gives five to one, two to one, and one to one. So five to one. The five yields five. The two yields two. The one yields nothing. And here we have one, 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 and different yields. What is Jesus trying to say there? I think he's saying this. God has invested something in all of us, but it's different. It's different. And he likes it that way. Paul would describe in the book of Corinthians that we all have been given different bodily functions, if you will. Right? We're all different parts. Some of us are arms. Some of us are noses. Some of us are ingrown hairs. Greg Smith is the ingrown hair, if you're wondering what his spiritual gift diagnosis is. Yeah, thank you, Greg. It's true. But Greg says, Paul, I might be the ingrown hair, but you're the thorn in the flesh. Thanks, you, I appreciate that. Very encouraging to come back home here. But what is, what is the point there that I think Jesus is trying to do? Look what he says to the second servant. Is the, is the king upset? Is he disappointed? No way. He gets the same acknowledgement. He gets the same kind of award. Look what he says in verse 19. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. See, this is what we miss. We've all been given different gifts. And we all experience different results for those gifts. But what's the point? We use them. We use them. We don't sit on their potential. We don't take that potential to the grave. We do something with it. Now, some of us are going to have more influence, praise God, but it's not a competition. It's a service to the king, and all we want to say is, here, here, I want to give back. What you gave me, I've done more with it. Here it is. And he is charitable and loving and compassionate to say, great job. Here's more. That's his heart. The majority of this parable is not told to that audience, though. It's told to the lazy. It's told to the lazy servant. It's told to the one who would take his potential to the grave. Let's look at this servant. And this is what I think Jesus' main point, this is the, the main section, the, the more verses on this one thing right here. I think it's very poignant and specific to what his disciples will have to encounter in their future. In building the church and fulfilling the great commission look down in verse 19 sorry verse 20 and then another came saying Lord here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief what is he doing putting money in a handkerchief I feel like this is the start of a bad magic trick like a bird's gonna come out later or something like that's gonna happen like what what is he doing why is he hiding it in a handkerchief what what is that for Now, when I first read this, I thought to myself, okay, I I know what this is. He's just not good at math. He's just afraid of the market, right? I mean, we could all probably, in American history, over the last 10 years, could say we're all afraid of the market. We don't know what's going to happen. I had equity, and then I didn't have equity, and it went away. Maybe that's what he's afraid of. He sees these guys making money and all these shrewd deals and they're really good at figuring all this stuff out but maybe he's just not good at math and he, he can't figure out the algorithm of how trading is done. He, he doesn't know how to do E-Trade or do another one. Does, do I listen to the baby on the television and do that kind of investment stuff? Do I, do I go and do this investment stuff? Like, what do I do? So maybe he's afraid of the market. He's afraid of that adventure. He's afraid to fail. But Luke does not leave us to our imagination to diagnose this man's true fear. Look at his fear. What is he really afraid of? Verse 21, for I was afraid of you. He's afraid of the master. He's afraid of the nobleman who's now become a king. He's afraid of him. That is what's kept him from risk. That's what has kept him from investment. So he hid it because he's afraid of the king. Now just imagine having this conversation with your boss, your superior. Why have you underperformed? Well, boss, it's because I'm afraid of you. Right? Look at what he says. Look at how he continues. As as, as he kind of builds maybe, I almost feel like a case file against this king. I was afraid of you, verse 21 in the second half here. Because you are a severe man. Try that on your boss. You know what that's called? That's called an exit interview. Right? You're done. I'm sorry. I, can't, I couldn't. You wanted these things. But to be honest, I'm afraid of you. You're a severe man. And he's like, good. I hope your next box is better. Right? That's what he would say. But he continues on. Look what he says. You take, Can you just man. Just put yourself, just say this to your boss. Picture your boss right now. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Really? This guy's the king now. When he was the nobleman, maybe you say this stuff. But he came back and he's king. And this is how you talk to the king? No way. No way. Now think about it. Is this guy right? Is he right? Is his position and knowledge of the king is it correct? This idea of the king being severe, that he's a shrewd businessman, and that he wants to almost take advantage of this guy. Is that the heart of the king? No way. We've seen it in his interaction with the first two servants. What, is the, what does the king want to do? Reward. He just wants to give more. He wants to invest, see potential in somebody, and say, oh, you did well, you did great. It was different than this guy, but that's okay. I don't care. You did well, here's more. That's the heart of the king. This servant does not know the king. His understanding is totally off. And look at the king's response to the servant who hid his money, who took his potential to the grave. This is verse 22. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. And what he's saying there is, let's just pretend you're right, which he's not. He's using his argument against him. So let's just pretend you're right here, you wicked servant. You know I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, verse 23. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. What is he saying there? Now, to us, we think, yeah, that's not going to get you much, right? What does your saving account get you now? 0.00001%. Yay. Right? You get that back little interest thing. You got a quarter. Awesome. <laughs> right? kids, you're getting a gumball. Just one of you though. Fight over it. Right? I mean, but this is what but think about what what Jesus is revealing here. He's basically telling the guy, it's not about the yield that I'm interested in. This again frees the guy from the fear of the market. He's just saying, you could have hardly lift a finger. Just give it to somebody else, let the interest build. It may be small, it may be insignificant, but you did something with it. That's what he's saying. You don't sit on this potential. You you actualize it. And maybe to a small degree, I would have been okay with that. So I think God is gracious. He doesn't expect the same yield from all of us. He's merciful in that way. But again, this servant doesn't know his king, doesn't know his master. So what he has is taken away. Look at verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina." Take my investment back. Take it from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. I tell you that to everyone has more, more will be given. But, to, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies, this is the very beginning of the story, those guys who rebelled, represented by the religious Jewish leaders who would call for Christ to be crucified, those enemies, this is what happens. This is how again, I think we know this is the end of days. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What is he saying? He's saying there's a time where God's patience for his enemy will run out. Now, God is patient. You just read the pages of the scripture. He dies for his enemies. He forgives those who crucify him. He is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, providing, 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 hoping the son will finally come back, hoping the daughter will finally come back in. But there's a time where that patience runs out, where he has to be a God of justice and he has to execute punishment, he has to do something, and that time is at the end. Now, I think what we usually do sometimes in a casual reading of this, we think there's two categories here. There's the enemies of God, the rebels, who ran to almost stop the delegation, to to stop him becoming king, who didn't want Christ, who will never will bend a knee to him, who hold on even to their dying breath to be a rebel to God. We think there's those. And then we say there's a second group in this parable that Jesus is talking to, and those are servants. Those are the ones who go to heaven, right? And some of them a great yield, some of them a medium yield. And some of them, no yield. Right? Some just take their potential to the grave. But that, I do not believe, is Jesus' point. I think in Jesus' mind, there's three groups. Not two. I think there's three. I think there's the rebels. I think there's the servants. And then I think there's the lazy servant. There's the one who thinks he's a servant. The one that he thinks is in. But truly, his end is not with them, but with them. Let me show you this. Just look at how this third servant is described, who I think represents our third group. If you look in verse 20, Luke chapter 19, verse 20, when this third servant is first introduced into the narrative, this is what it says, then another came, another. Now, what does that mean? Is it another just like these guys? Just like these two servants? No. No. In the Greek, this is another of a different kind, heteros, like heterosexual is somebody who is attracted to somebody of another kind, a man attracted to a woman. So the idea is, this is another servant of another kind. He's not like these two guys over here. He's different. And then look at how the master calls to him. Now, remember, this is the end of times, the end of days. God is wrapping things up. This is the great reconciliation, the separation between sheep and goats. And look at what he says to this servant in verse 22. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Now, wait a second. Are you telling me? That in the end of days when God separates the sheep from the goats, and some go into the bliss of their master that enjoy heaven, the home that's been built for them, the room that's been added to the Father's house for them. And when he says, you go here into the bliss of your master, you go here into banishment. When he's telling there is heaven, there is hell, do you think he says to one walking into the Father's house, walking into heaven, wicked, come on in? No, no, that's not an option. In all of biblical theology, that is not an option. It's not an option for Luke, and I think it's clear when Jesus retells or in a similar way tells his parable and in Matthew chapter 25, the lazy servant gets punishment. He took his potential to the grave and he entered into the grave, the second death. He entered into banishment. Now, why? Why was that the destiny of the third servant? Why did that happen? Why did he sit on his potential? Why did he hide it in a handkerchief or in Matthew 25? Why did he bury it in the ground? Why? Because he didn't know the king. He didn't know him. He had a totally wrong view of him. And I think this is what Luke is telling us. This guy is off the mark. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know the king. So he sits on his investment and does nothing with it. Because in Luke's mind, you can't know him and not work for him. You can't. You can't look at Jesus Christ, spread arms open wide, beaten, bruised by humanity, but not just that. It is the hand of God that crushed him, the hand of God that was held in the Old Testament, where sin wasn't fully accounted for, when we see narratives like the flood, and narratives like the Tower of Babel, and narratives like the fall of Jericho, and we think that's judgment, but that is not enough. The hand of God is still high, and it did not fall until that day when the Son died, and everything came on Him. Everything and all of God's wrath poured out. And that was our propitiation. That was the absolvement of all the wrath of God in a moment. Not until then was His wrath satisfied. And are you telling me that you look at that and you see that cross and you can hold your potential, hold your investment Hold on to your wallet, hold on to the deed of your home, hold on to your children, hold on to your work, hold on to your life. Lo- how, how do you hold on to anything when he let go of everything, when he emptied himself of all that he has? And see, this is what we lose Sometimes. And I think this is the great shock that Jesus would talk about at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that people will come with a title of servant who have squandered their potential and only show themselves not to be a servant. In fact, there is such one that heard this parable. His name was Judas. His name was Judas, who would not enter into the bliss of his master, but only be abandoned by the Father forever. So Valley Bible Church, this is my question to you. I think if you're here and you know Him, I think all you want to do is work for Him. And I think when you don't want to work for Him, it's because you're not looking at Him. You're not seeing Him. You're not knowing Him. The cross is not at the forefront of your mind, and so you are fine with sitting on your potential. But do not do that. Now, I speak to a church and speak to brothers and sisters who have made sacrifices. All you have to do is look at a snapshot of, on Google Maps and look at this property, and you see people investing themselves to build what we even sit in. This is not a church who squanders or takes its potential to the grave, but that does not mean that we're all on E yet. It does not mean there's not something more to be done. So my question to you is what is stopping you? What is holding you back from investing your full potential in this work here? Is it an ambition? Is it a dream? Is it a sin? Is it your family? Is it something good? What is it? What stops you from maximizing your gifts to the zenith of their potential, of giving a yield to God only to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now maybe you're not a Christian, you're not a believer yet, you just came as a guest and we're excited you're here and I want you to know this is a safe place for all your spiritual questions. I want you to know I came to church for a very long time before I ever became a Christian because I wanted to know things. I had questions and if that's you, great. And I want you to hear this and I want you to confuse Before God ever shows you the great plan that he has for you, before God ever opens the book of the great ministry career, he wants you to go in. The first thing he wants you to see is not his plans for you, but his love for you. His love for you wrapped up in his son, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, that he has called you back into the family. Before you ever do the family business, he wants you in the family, and he is desperate to get you back. And if that's you, please make that known. Find somebody, grab a pastor, uh, uh, grab grab anybody and say, I want to know who this Jesus is. We would love to invite you into the family. I'll tell you this, this is what will happen, is when you see the love of God for you, when you see what he did for you on the cross, the victory he gives you at the resurrection, it will build such a desire in you that you will bug us to do some work. (laughs) They'll say, pastor, you need people in children's ministry? Boom, you got me, sign me up. Pastor, you need somebody in the choir? I can't sing, but I'll try. Right? You need somebody to do some PowerPoint stuff. You need somebody to do some light stuff. You know, it's surprising how many saints sit with dissatisfaction in their hearts at the presentation of a church service and aren't willing to serve. If you don't like it, fix it. Help us. We probably don't like it either. Right? We don't know why the lights are doing certain things. Help us. Join us. Get in the business. We're not professionals, but we just love to serve our King. Church, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Christ, we thank you for the sacrifice of endless impact. We are so disarmed by your love. Blindsided by your charity. We don't know what to say to what you, for what you've done for us. But God, if the assignment was to write a million thank you cards in a thousand years, we'd do it. Not to win your love, but because we're loved and gratefulness is just burning in us and we know you've invested in us. And God, all we want to do is actualize that potential, bring everything to the forefront of what it can be. We want to run and run and run and collapse on that finish line with empty. That's what we want. God, help us to enter into eternity on E. Help us to not squander any of our potential, move the hurdles away that are in our hearts that keep us from maximizing ourselves to you, giving ourselves fully to you and this great endeavor you've given us in the Great Commission. And Father, for those that don't yet know you, God, would you bring them, bring them to you, let them see the wonderful embrace of this family. And working may sound weird, but when you're loved and you're brought into this family, that's all you want to do. Is it a delight to serve you. Holy Spirit, would you give us the gift of great workers and allow us to be a part of your great work. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.